Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Welcome to episode 159 of There's Still Time, the AFTN podcast. I'm your host, Michael McCall, and it's just me for this episode. Steve is currently serving a Too Much ban dished out by the MLS podcast Disco. We are appealing it though, so he might be back for episode 160, we'll just have to see how that goes. This is our first podcast for this wonderful month of June 2016, and this is a month that is a veritable feast of football. You've got the Whitecaps and MLS action later in the month. Voyager's Cup action right now, hopefully to continue into later of the month. USL team. Residency team are going to be starting their playoff hunt for the USSDA championships at under 18 and under 16 level. Busy, busy time for all the Whitecaps guys there. Internationally, you've got Copa America on just now down in the US. And over in France, you've got the Euro 2016s. So much football. So little time to watch. We're going to be covering a lot of those competitions in this podcast. Later on we're going to hear from Kyle Robinson talking about Wales's chances in the Euros. We're also going to look a little bit at Copa America that got underway on Friday. But we're going to turn our attentions first and foremost to the Vancouver Whitecaps. Have to say, hasn't been a wonderful start to the month for the Caps. Horrendous showing on Wednesday night out in Ottawa. 2-0 loss in the first leg of the Canadian Championship game against the Fury. And a hat tip first and foremost to the Fury who played an excellent game, well worth their two-goal lead. Started strongly, took a goal just three minutes in from former Whitecap Johnny Steele. Added a second before half-time from another former Whitecap, albeit he was only here really for a cup of coffee. Paolo Jr. got that second, again good work from Steele in the build-up to that. And then a third former Whitecap, Kyle Porter, nearly added a third goal for Ottawa late in the game that I think would have just killed the the Whitecaps' chances stone dead. So you had that horror show on Wednesday. Then on Friday you get the announcement that Kendall Waston, not unexpectedly, had picked up a second one-game ban from Disco for his tackle on Espria down in Portland a few weeks back. took ages to sort that out, but from what we are led to believe it's because... The players' union were in discussions with Kendall to see if he wanted to appeal that. But at the same time as banning Kendall, Octavio Rivero now finds himself suspended for a trailing leg that caught Houston goalkeeper Derek in their last game at BC Place. Nonsensical. Nothing he could do to pull out of that tackle. He didn't go in to hurt the guy. Derek was fine afterwards. No one thought any more of it. And apparently when Octavio was told, he, he didn't believe that he was suspended. And Robo had to actually show him on the computer that, look, I'm not winding you up, mate. You are suspended. It's just, it's farcical. They, they seem to have it in for Vancouver. You, you don't want to have that kind of siege mentality or conspiracy theories going. But it's really, really getting to the stage. It's really hard to think that something isn't happening, that, that Disco are just trying to make an example of the Whitecaps this year. So a bad couple of days for the first team, compounded on Saturday as the USL team, WFC2, lost their 10 match and beaten record to start the season, 1-0 loss to Real Monarchs, losing to a 95th minute goal. Last kick of the game, from a free kick that came in, 
which was given away by Sam Arikugbe, who got sent off for it. Another white cap getting sent off. So so the, the red card frenzy, the red mist, it's now kind of descending onto the USL team, which is a little bit worrying. So not a fun-filled few days for Whitecaps fans, but if you like to live your life by the, the songs of Dream, things can only get better. So let's cast our attention now back to that Ottawa game. As we said, it was a, a deserved win really for the Fury. Whitecaps now have an uphill mountain to climb. Two-goal deficit, not insurmountable, and I really do think that they are going to come back and win. I'm confident that Rob is going to put out a really strong team in the second leg. They're going to get the first goal, and they're going to go on it and win the tie. The first goal is key. You don't want to be faced with a scenario of Ottawa scoring first, needing four goals. That's simply not going to happen. Slow and steady, that's all the Whitecaps need to do. Go in the first half, go in the second half, take it to extra time, kill it off, head through to the final, hopefully against Montreal, who are 4-2 down, but storming comeback for their 10 men against Toronto last Wednesday. That's going to be a cracking second leg as well. The Whitecaps really want to defend this cup. It means a lot to them. It means a lot to the club. And let's just hear a little bit now from Kyle Robinson just talking about a year down the road, what that cup win meant to him last year and what retaining it would mean to him and the club this year. Looking back on last year's success, one year on, yeah. what does it mean to you? And like it was your first trophy as a manager. Just, yeah. What did the whole thing mean to you? Well, it's always special when you win a trophy and... You know, I've, I've been very lucky that we've won the Canadian Championship before, as I said. Uh, but I think to the club, to the people who've been here a number of years, it was a it was a special moment, and it's one that they will treasure, and it's one I will use for um, motivation to try and retain it this year. Because we don't want to be a team that wins it one year and then doesn't win it for the next four or five. We want to try and consecutively win it. Um, so we'll we'll have a good go at winning it again because it meant everything last year, not just to everyone within the club, but every supporter that come into the stadium to watch the final, the second leg. So um, we, I know certainly how much it means to people. So Rob are there talking about the, the Voyager's Cup and what it means to him and the club. And a few questions over the years have questioned Robo and the Whitecaps as to how seriously they take this competition. And it's, it's a situation the Whitecaps just can't win. Folks scream for them to play their young Canadian guys. So they play them, then they play poorly, and then they get beat. And then folk are like, you're not taking the competition seriously. Where was Pedro? Where was Matty Laba? You can't have both things, folks. It's like, you can't blood these guys who are still learning the game and expect them to go against a a good bunch of pros and a a bunch of guys that's got a lot of MLS experience and go out and perform at a fantastic level. I did expect better from them. They did look very sluggish in that game in Ottawa. And the time is coming with a few of these guys that you have to ask the serious question. Yes, they might look good in the USL. Yes, they might be development prospects. Yeah, we've seen what they've done in their youth career. But can they make it at the first team level? Carl Robinson has given them chances. He gave them chances in the Champions League last year. He's given them chances in the Canadian Championship. Certain players are not taking their chances. Certain players are not rising to the occasion. Certain players you have to look at at the end of this year and say, is it worth continuing to, to keep them on when you've got a plethora of young talent pushing to come into the first team? Some serious questions are going to have to be asked about a few of these guys. It was good though to see Ben McKendry get his first first team start. He didn't do too badly. Hope to maybe see him get more minutes on Wednesday. Have a feeling though that he's not going to start. And another guy that made his first first team appearance for the Whitecaps was 2016 super draft pick, centre-back Cole Siler. And I've got to say, Siler was probably my man of the match, Whitecaps-wise. Johnny Steele, I think, takes the, the man of the match for, for just either side. Still haunting my dreams, that, that beard of his, I'm just seeing it and waking up in a cold sweat. But Cole Siler had a really good game. In beside Tim Parker, the guys have known each other since their university days out in New York. They're good friends off the pitch as well. Siler has done well in the USL this year and the partnership that he's formed with Sem DeWitt has been really strong and Sem DeWitt as well is a guy that I think is pushing really hard to try and get an MLS contract as well. Big fan of his. But but Siler did well. Martin Pert said afterwards that for him he was the man of the match. Said that 
said that he showed in that game that he was definitely worthy of MLS minutes and I think we'll see him get another start this Wednesday and I think we'll see him pushing for MLS minutes quite soon as well. Especially the way that Kendall Watson's going with suspensions and the way that Pamadou Kaha played down in Portland in the last game. So Salah returned to action for the Whitecaps at USL level on Saturday in that loss to Real Monarchs. Playing right back though, Carl Robinson had asked him to, to play right back in that game because he wanted to have a look at him in, in that position, which is quite interesting to, to look at. It does make you wonder, is Jordan Smith's time maybe running out? Is he going to maybe end the loan deal, get rid of him and free up an international spot? We'll wait and see on that, no point speculating too much on that just now. But we caught up with Cole Siler after the match, just to ask him about the, the WFC2 loss, but mainly to ask him about his first first team appearance for the Caps, what it meant to him, how he found the whole experience, and just how he finds that his game has developed over the last couple of months. So here's centre-back Cole Siler. So, tough way to lose the undefeated record. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And I was just telling them, um, previously, uh, throughout the season, we've been winning those type of games. And for whatever reason, today just wasn't was going for us. You have that one that uh, Haber hits just across the face of goal, and Vital, like slides in the back post, and I just barely misses it for, for whatever reason. So, I think it's going to be a good sign of our team. In my years past, uh, we, when you pick up tough losses like that, especially in the last minute, um, it can either make or break a team, but I think um, knowing the guys and the personalities we have on the team, it'll, it'll bring us together. Uh, a different role for you today as well. Yeah. Right, right but how, how did you find playing there, and what, what was behind it, do you know? Was it just to give Jackson some minutes as well? Or I'm not sure exactly. Uh, Robo, after our lift yesterday at lunch, told me that, hey, Cole, you're going to be playing in the uh, USL game tomorrow at right back, so be ready for that. And um, whatever whatever I can do for the team, I'm always uh, up for. I never really played it in college, but it was. Um, I think in the first half, uh, it showed that I was a little bit timid and kind of unsure about when to step and where actually to position myself on the field. But in the second half, Alan came in and Stevie gave us a good halftime talk, and it definitely changed my mentality. And on Wednesday night, yeah, you made your first team debut. Yeah, it was no, awesome. It wasn't the result you yeah. were looking for, but how was the whole experience for you? It was great. It was great. Um, the Ottawa fans, only, even though there was only 9,000 of them, they were certainly very loud and um, definitely like you could hear them throughout the whole game. I think, uh, unfortunately for the team, um, it wasn't the result we wanted, but I think we kind of know what to expect for the next game and hopefully um, we'll be able to change up our mentality and get, get the three goals that we need. And Martin Pear after the game very complimentary mm-hmm. said that you definitely had what it takes to, to play MLS minutes did, did you feel really comfortable out there? Yeah, yeah and I was fortunate that I had Timmy um, right next to me he, we were pretty good pals off the field but he definitely helped me um, during the game and uh, I just try to do my best to kind of liven the team up as, as much as I can and uh, whenever I get my next call up um, whether it be with the USL or the first team I, I just hope I can bring the same energy and uh, same type of play we were talking with Alan uh, just a second ago, and he was saying that uh, both on Wednesday and uh, tonight, uh, that some of the players look a little bit sluggish, a little bit more for it. Is there anything uh, that, that you think would have contributed to, towards that? Um, I mean, I would say maybe the heat uh, is kind of hard to get used to, just because it was a little bit hot three weeks ago. But I, 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 I don't think you can really use that as an excuse. Um, I think we kind of need, first for some reason, we need to find something that really gets us like fired up because we've been starting the last three or four games, I would say kind of sluggish the first 15 minutes, and that can totally change the shape of change the uh, mentality of a game. So we need it. We're still working. I mean, we're, still, we're finished just the third of the season, so we still have a lot of the season left. But like I said, after a loss like this, I think in my prior experience, teams will uh, come to the drawing board and we'll, we'll get it together. When I last spoke to you, I think it was in March, uh, just before the Houston game, we yeah. if you were going to play or not. Yeah. We were talking about what you'd learn pre-season and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You've got all these USL games under your belt now. Yeah. How do you see your game having developed over the last two months? Um, I think it's a lot. Like uh, Even talking with Purdy um, after my last game, you, you think more about not so much just, just the ball, but more like the grand scheme of things. So uh, he was telling me we were 2-0 up, and I tried it a little kind of like a tricky pass out to my outside back but um, when you're 2-0 up you should just be clearing that ball so I think 
kind of taking everything in at the game, whether you be away at home or at home, uh, taking all those factors in and kind of maturing as a player. And I think definitely USL has helped with that. And you and Sam's got a really good partnership. Yeah, yeah, I, enjoy, I really enjoy really it. comfortable with him? Yeah, I love playing with Sam. I think we have a really good balance with one another. And um, I think our, our games are just very compatible with one another. And that's, that's really what uh, a lot of the center back uh, position is, is about just kind of finding your match. And um, once you get some games together, you kind of – uh, learn each other's tendencies, and I think I've got that with Sam. That's great. Hey, thank you guys. Thanks so much, Cole. Yeah, enjoy cheers. your weekend. You too. So, Cole Siler there. Will he get another shout in the, the game on Wednesday? I think he will partner Parker in the centre of the Whitecaps defence. There's going to be a lot of other changes, so there's going to be a lot of the first string guys playing. Expect to see Pedro, Matty Laba. I think they'll probably keep Paolo Ternaghi in goal. Toss-up really between whether you have Sam Adekugbe or Jordan Harvey in. I would honestly bring back Jordan. I just feel that they need to do that. Have Fraser Edit right back as well. Get Kakuta Mani on from the start. Nicholas Mosquita playing in the OM role with Pedro back beside Laba as kind of the DMCM. I know it's a Canadian tournament, I know that you want to see the Canadian guys, but Whitecaps have to get back this two goals. If Ottawa score first, it's going to be pretty much game over, because the Whitecaps scoring four against a team that's going to shut up shop, going to be really, really hard. So it's going to be a, an interesting game. Ottawa's two goals in the first leg came from former Whitecaps. A few other Whitecap connections, of course, with Ottawa. Martin Nash is the assistant manager there. Paul Dalglish, not a Whitecaps connection, but he knows Kakutamani very well, having kind of coached him in his youth career with Austin Aztecs. And on the sidelines for Ottawa is goalkeeping coach Bruce Grobelar. Now, Grobelar is a, a legend in the game. Played two seasons with Vancouver, 1979, the soccer ball winning year. He was back up to Phil Parks. 1980, he came back, took the starters role, shared that with David Harvey, but he was, he was the number one. He played the most games. Overall, he made 24 appearances for the Whitecaps over those two seasons. Eight clean sheets, one every three games. Conceded 30 goals overall. Pretty good record for the Zimbabwean. And he loved his time here. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to dig into the AFTN vaults. It's something I've been looking to do for a while. Dig out some of our really, really early interviews that we've done. This one is from April 2012 and it actually predates the There's Still Time AFTN podcast. It's when I did the West Coast Soccer Weekly podcast with Pierce Lang and we caught up with Bruce Grobelar before he was involved with Ottawa. He'd just moved over to Canada, moved to Newfoundland. So we had a really good chat with Bruce, talked about his time in Vancouver with the Whitecaps, talked about his time in Liverpool winning all the trophies that he won there, Touched a little bit on all the match fiction stuff that kind of plagued his career in the later days. Also, we had to mention Hillsborough and everything about that, and just what his hopes were for the future. And as you'll hear from this, there's a lot changed from Bruce since we spoke to him four years ago. He's now back in coaching with Ottawa Fury. This is his second season there now. And a funny story about that, he, he gave an interview with The Guardian where he kind of explained how he got the gig. Former Ottawa coach Mark DeSantis called him up, asked him if he would be interested in the goalkeeping coaching position. He was given his name by Nick Dazovich from the CSA, but DeSantos knew nothing about Bruce Grobelar, asked him if he had a good background in, in football, and Bruce is like, yeah, kinda. This is a guy that, that's won European Cups and so many trophies over the years. Asked him what he was doing just now, he said he was coaching Cornerbrook, who an amateur side in Newfoundland, and... And DeSantis says, oh, so you're, you're coaching amateurs. Have you ever had any experience uh, coaching pros? And he's like, yeah, yeah, but... So DeSantis asks him to send his CV in. He sends it along. Hour later, DeSantis calls him back, really apologetic. Grobelar thought he was apologetic because he hadn't got the job, but he was apologising because he didn't have any idea who he was. And obviously, it was a little bit disrespectful, like asking him all these questions when the guy is a legend in the game. But it's good to see Bruce back in football, back with Ottawa Fury. Clearly doing well with the goalkeepers there. Ottawa's keeper was NSL Goalkeeper of the Year last year, so he's clearly doing something right. So let's hear this interview from Bruce now. It's quite a lengthy interview, it runs to about half an hour. So if you don't want to hear this, you can fast forward through half an hour. But why would you not want to hear this? 
Now, I didn't actually have the original audio to this because for some reason I didn't really download the, the podcasts that I, I did with Pierce back in the day. Pierce didn't have any copies of it either because he'd wiped his computer. But thankfully for this occasion, this is an interview that I had done a backup recording of just because it was such a big interview we didn't want anything to go wrong. So at times it's not the best quality. Miss a little bit about the start as well, but basically we kick into the interview where Bruce is talking about just... The, the different characteristics and changes that he noticed when he came over here in the old NASL days. So let's hear now from Ottawa Fury goalkeeping coach, former Whitecap and Liverpool legend, Bruce Grobelar. to not bring up the spaghetti legs penalty kick would, do you think that would have worked in the NASL? Would have worked uh, I think it would have done um, had I been given the chance to do that in the NASL I think that I would have done that there um, but yeah uh, it's been copied it's been revamped it's been um, ex- expanded so Yes, uh, it's a psychological uh, barrier that you've got to break, and you've got to break down the temperament, and that's that's all that was for. But, like growing up in Scotland and, and watching you for Liverpool, that that's something that always sticks in my mind. Watching that 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 final and, and you doing that, does it annoy you a little bit that that's what people remember you for, and perhaps they kind of view you more? from your clowning antics as opposed to what a good goalkeeper you were? Listen, if they, uh, if they remember me for the spaghetti legs, uh, let them remember me for spaghetti legs. A lot of other people will remember me for something else, and uh, good luck to them. Um, I, for one, that was a highlight of my um, one of uh, the games of my career. It won me and the club um, a fourth European Championship, and uh, it was one of those spur-of-the-moment things that I was asked by the manager to try and put off uh, the penalty takers. And if you noticed, I only put off two international, Italian internationals. I never went after anybody else, just the Italian internationals. And it seemed to have worked. How did it feel playing in that final in Rome against a Roma side that everyone in the stadium apart from the Liverpool fans that were there, they, they were wanting the home team to win. I mean, is that the most pressure you've ever felt in a game? Michael, when we first got there, we, uh, we drove into the stadium and uh, there were three, three of our management team, uh, two directors, all of the players. We were all stunned when we, before we got in, into the dressing room. I mean that uh, sincerely because the other fans started throwing rocks through the window of the bus. And so the bus windows were caved in, um, and that set the precedent for the game. When we got into the tunnel uh, after the referee had come in to say the, uh, tell us the rules, we went into the tunnel. Only our team was just standing there for about three or four minutes, and they didn't. They refused to come out, and so we started a song. Uh, it was Chris Rears. I don't know what it is, but I love it. I don't know what it is, but I want to stay. And I love it, love it. And that's how we started warming up. And every verse we started getting louder and louder. And then I ended up hitting the dressing room door of the Roma players. And only then did they come out here. So the, the, the whole rigmarole of that evening started on the bus coming into the stadium. And I didn't stop there, you know, went into the game, we played, uh, drew 1-1, and then 
and the, uh, the penalty kicks, the manager asked, put his arm around me and said, listen, no, nobody's going to blame you if you cannot stop the ball from 12 yards. And as I was, he said, to try and put them off. This uh, uncle, uh, Joe Fagan, we called him uncle because he was smoking, Joe. <laughs> I mean, it, what would you say was your your favourite ever game? Was it would it be that eighty four cup final, or would it be one of the other ones that that won the championships for Liverpool? Michael, there were so many that I could mention. Uh, our first uh, double, which was the the league eighty. Um, Eighty-one, eighty-two season, and then we we beat Tottenham in the League Cup final. That was a double that first uh, season. After being being thirteenth position at Boxing Day, thirteen points behind the league was West Ham. We ended up uh, winning the uh, the championship by three points and again to spare. Uh, that was a highlight. I I, uh, I started the season very badly and by Christmas uh, all the fans were paying for my head and Bob Paisley calls me into the office and he said well Adam do you think your first year went for the first six months and I said well I could have done better he says yes you should you should do better in the second half otherwise you'll be finding yourself playing for crew <laughs> One of the, the games I always remember, or one of your tackles I always remember, was in the, the 83 League Cup final when you took out my, my fellow Scott Gordon McQueen. And it was, it was one of those tackles that, for anyone that doesn't know it, it basically it kept Liverpool in the game. You, you didn't get sent off and Liverpool went on to win the Cup final. Do you, do you remember that tackle? Yes, uh, Gordon McQueen came down the right-hand side just over the halfway line and he pushed the ball a bit too far in front of him. And I raced out uh, onto the left-hand side of my area, 35 yards into the, uh, out of my area. And um, he tried to push the ball past me. It clipped me, went out of bounds, but I couldn't stop and he couldn't stop and I clattered into him and he went sprawling onto the dust. Um, that's what uh, I remember. I don't know if it looks any um, different on the, on the videos, but I haven't seen the videos from now. From From my experience with talking to Liverpool fans over the last couple of weeks, they said you were likely to see a moment or two like that out of you every once in a while. They described your style as maybe unorthodox, but incredibly agile. How would you have described your game? Yes, if I had, had to describe my game, I would say that uh, I played with confidence, um, um, sure of my ability, and um, yeah, ext extremely agile. I think that I got that from my my father's side, uh, making me do gymnastics as a young boy and playing in every other sport that I that he, you know, that. He, he made me play every sport, you know, from tennis, swimming, diving on a three-meter board, uh, rugby, hockey, everything, baseball, cricket. So I was just a sports fanatic. Now you you played a number of games for Zimbabwe international level as well, and from my memory of the time, trying to look this back, you, you kind of because you wanted to play for your country. David James kind of started to take over the, the goalkeeping duties at Liverpool. Do, do you regret that or are you, are you glad that you made the decision to, to play for your country as much as you could? Michael, I would have played for my country. I would have swam back if I had to. Uh, to play for your country is an honour and a privilege and uh, they bestowed that privilege upon me being uh, a white, white man playing for Zimbabwe. There's no uh, greater feeling as trying to represent your country. And uh, people must know that, uh, yes, there are a lot of players that have got problems with country and club. Yeah, you get paid to play for your club, and that's an honour and a privilege to play for your country. And you are bestowed uh, as an ambassador when you, are, when you are playing for your country. And that is what is such a great honour to be in. 
And you, you were briefly player manager for the national team as well, weren't you? Uh, Michael, I had my country for five games, uh, two as a player manager, one as a player, and one just as a say two as a player manager, two as a player coach, and one as just a manager. Now, you've coached some clubs as well in, in Zimbabwe and, and in South Africa. How, how is the game in Zimbabwe? Do you, do you ever think they're going to be one of the, the big powers in African football? Michael, the Bobbian foot has gone uh, since the, uh, I would say, the regime that has struck, stuck with him for so long. Uh, a lot of these Zimbabweans uh, are so poor that they have to go and flee to other countries to get uh, a wage of living. I know for a fact because I'm a, I'm a patron of the Latvian Highland Academy in Bulawayo. And I know that there's a lot of players there that are asked me to try and get them clubs elsewhere. But the only clubs that they can go to are the ones in South Africa, which I've helped out in quite a few. Uh, Benjamin in Marawaru, who's played for Portsmouth and Zimbabwe, he does a lot with the academy and he started his own academy up in Harare. So with the ex-players of Zimbabwe, we're trying to get that side of the uh, the football side in Zimbabwe up and running again, but it's uh, it's like knocking your head against a brick wall. But whatever wall is in front of us, we'll try and knock it down to try and get it working again. And you were over for the World Cup in in 2010 as well. How, how did you find the whole experience in South Africa? <laughs> Michael, I had a great time. I was working for um, Norwegian TV too as a commentator and on-pitch analyzer. Um, I took the TV2 crew to places that they would never see uh, or never go into. So it was a great experience for myself to take the Norwegian crew around. We did interviews in places that no other TV crew would ever want to go. And I think that the, the whole experience of the World Cup in South Africa has been a, a Brilliant! Um, it was a great honour to to be a part of that that team for the Norwegian TV. Even they, even if they didn't have a, a national side to play in that in that competition. Yeah, it's been a while since Scotland got to a World Cup as well. I, I kind of forget what it's like. Um, so, are you involved in in football in any way now in, in Newfoundland, or are you are you have you taken a break from it? What made me come to Newfoundland? I'll tell you, I was prom I promised a job in football over here, but my wife was promised a, a position at the hospital. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, my side, the promise didn't uh, arise, and my wife is working at the Western Memorial um, Hospital. Uh, am I in football? Yes, I do a lot of symposiums in uh, Nova Scotia. I coach coaches, I've coached kids, uh, I'm doing my A badges at the moment with the Canadian Soccer Association. I will be putting my CV in for jobs that are coming up within the Canadian organisation, the Soccer Association, uh, as I've uh, done in Ontario. And it will continue because I would like to get back into football as soon as possible. Now I'm not sure if you had a chance to see uh, Gordon Ramsay in his most recent footballing adventure get flattened. Did you happen to see that on the TV? No, I haven't watched uh, Gordon Ramsay uh, on any footballing show because uh, I believe that he was never a footballer. <laughs> Great shifter. Um, well, you'd have spent some time on the show Hell's Kitchen. He doesn't do the UK show. Oh, he doesn't? No. <laughs> oh, well, that tie-in's useless then. Um, well, we can ask about it anyway. Well, I was going to say that uh, when you were on Hell's Kitchen, the UK version, um, you wore a black armband in memory of the Hillsborough massacre. Would you be able to uh, share with us your lasting memory of that day? Yes, it was... Uh... Yes, I could uh, recite every every minute if you wanted to, but it'll, it's going to take too long. Listen, Pierce, it was a great day when we woke up. We went to the stadium as normal. Everything was perfect. 
But the only thing that wasn't was uh, the cop end at the Sheffield ground, which held the most people, was uh, set aside for the Nottingham Forest ground and uh, the Lapping Lane end, which was three little sections beyond a stand where for the Liverpool supporters in the standing area. And yeah, things happened and we went out to warm up. Um, the, the middle section was getting fuller and fuller whilst we were warming up. The side sections weren't even getting uh, anybody into them. And now we know why, because uh, they never opened those gates um, to filter the, the fans through to those, those, those sides. And when we kicked off, there was a surge. A lot of people came through the middle uh, underneath the, the stand. And that's when the damage happened, where they crushed people against the fence. And it took them six minutes to realize that there was a lot of danger uh, in that area. And I ran over to the referee, which who I'd been shouting at for the, the past three, four minutes, to have a look there. And he looked over and then he stopped again. This was behind uh, your goal? That was right behind my goal, yes. I had to retrieve the ball about three or four times behind that end. And I was asked by some of the fans uh, to help them. And the only way that I could help is to get someone to open the gate or to get the referee to notice. When that happened, especially after Heisel, did, I mean, what was the feeling like at the club? Did you feel that there was kind of like a curse in the club or could you just not really fully comprehend what was happening? Well, we, we looked at it as a, a tragedy that should never have happened. Um, I know now why the search came and the, the faults that had to happen. The side gates weren't open. And uh, had they had been open, the fans could have gone through to the side section. Those gates were shut. There was only one little area to go through, and that was down the middle. And when the game started, people wanted to rush in to get, get a space to see the game. And the horses actually pushed them in. And those were the police horses. Had the normal people in charge, if they had a look at it again, if they wanted to turn back time to see if they could do anything different, yes, they would have. And uh, the club... Kenny Dalglish and uh, all the players and management uh, turned it on its head. We were asked by manager, management and the, and the uh, directors to get a certain feeling um, back amongst the fans, the bereaved families. We were all asked to go and counsel them. But by counselling them, we counselled ourselves. So we could get through that a lot quicker. And that is how we we managed to get back into the game uh, and do very, very well from them. I, I remember so vividly, I, I was never a Liverpool fan. I, I was a West Ham supporter um, growing up as my English team. But I, I remember the respect and the admiration I had for, for all the Liverpool players and uh, Kenny Dalglish as, as well, going to all the funerals, it's, it's just not something that you expect as a footballer that you're going to have to go and do that kind of thing. But I, I know that a number of football fans that weren't Liverpool fans just thought so highly of the team. And it was fitting that you went on and to win the Cup that year. And do, do you think there ever will be justice for the '96? I will always uh, feel that there will be justice. Um, there are going to be uh, more and more questions asked why the, the evidence wasn't shown. Um, and to be fair, the, the new owners have done the new uh, kit very proud by putting the eternal flames of 96 on the top of the neck and the back. Yeah. Because if, uh, that means there's 96 people behind you in every game that you play. And I, I, I fully am quite astounded why the truth hasn't come out uh, up until now. 
Bruce, I'd like to move on. I'm very glad you were able to share that with us. Um, you, you once famously said that it was your ambition to be the manager of Liverpool. Um, would you like to go back at, in some kind of managerial role or assistant manager or coaching role? Michael, you always had dreams. Uh, I dreamt that I was going to play for Liverpool. Uh, not in a dream, I said it to three new fellas in the bush in, in the army. And I ended up playing for Liverpool, but it took me a long, long time. Saying that I'd like to manage uh, Liverpool, yes, it was a dream that uh, you, you'd want to happen. But I am now in Canada and I'm looking to um, coach in Canada in some capacity. I'd love to be uh, involved in, in, in Liverpool in some, some capacity in the future. But my immediate future is uh, here in Canada, whether it in being coaching uh, technical directors or anyway, or in football anywhere in Canada, because um, this is where I'm going to be for the next 15 years. I've got a two and a half year old, and I'm going to have to put it through school and, and university. So looking about 17 years now. Now we wanted to get this um, back onto the white cap. Now, how, how did it feel to be in Vancouver when the team came home with the Soccer Bowl Championship? Now, if you'd asked me that earlier on, what are your highlights of your Vancouver career? That was one of them. Uh, coming back with that uh, championship uh, medal was absolutely fantastic. And then being honoured with the freedom of the city with the rest of the players was another one. And uh, it was... It was just magic. Um, I played with some great, great uh, players, and they were all on a very, very special. Uh, Vancouver people were honestly one of the best uh, fans in the NHL that you could ever have, and I think that they've taken that through to the MLS because they are passionate a lot. They know their football, and uh, Vancouver is doing very well. With so have you then watched many of the Whitecaps games the last two years? Uh, yes, being over here, we have to watch all the Canadian teams, uh, uh, as, as with Toronto being on this side, and now with Montreal just coming in. We watch all those uh, the games uh, that we can, because they're televised. And yeah, the, the, the soccer is improving. Uh, but there are a few things that I would like to have seen all the clubs do is getting um, more rounded players. I mean, uh, for instance, Vancouver, get a good Italian uh, international to come play here, then you'll get the Italian family. Like in Toronto, you've got uh, umpteen ethnic groups that they can choose from to buy just one player from every all of those ethnic groups, and you'll get all the fans coming to Montreal, just get, uh, you know, go and get a couple of French people, and that would be great for them. And uh, they'll bring in the fans by the, by the bucket line. We've pretty well gone this whole interview um, avoiding any discussion of the match fixing and we're going to steer clear of it. Um, basically though, I just wanted to know, after the allegations came out, you went out and you kept a clean sheet against Arsenal immediately after those allegations came out. Was there a sense of vindication for all those questions that had been asked? Michael, when you go through court for 10 years and you get uh, accused, uh, and yes, it is hard. Uh, when you get accused and then you come out on your next game and you keep a clean sheet, you, you don't look at it that game only. You have to look at that whole season with Southampton. Now, the manager was Alan Ball. And Alan Ball, once the, he heard the uh, allegations, Himself and Laurie McMenemy, which was the management team at Southampton, called me in when I came back from uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, we had a World Cup game. And uh, when, when I came back in, he asked me six times, did I do it? And I said, no. And he looked at uh, Laurie McMenemy and said, right, I'm playing. And for that season, I played 85% of the whole of that season. Uh, we ended up 10th in the league, which is the highest Southampton have ever done in the top flight. And I had the record of the most clean sheets uh, in a half a season. So if you have a look at that whole situation, I knew that I did nothing wrong. So why not go out and play the best you can? 
had I done something wrong, there could have been something that you could have pinpointed in many of my games. I mean, it's it's something, sadly, that people will always point back, and it's like, I think a lot of people forget the fact that you were actually cleared of it as well. But let, we won't talk about that anymore. We'll, we'll, we'll move on to like happier times. I actually, we mentioned Hell's Kitchen earlier. I just want to, to quickly go back and touch on that. What made you go into that? Have you always had a love of cooking? Michael, uh, since, since the allegations and me coming, getting cleared for those, uh, there's been a lot of things that uh, I would, would have wanted to have done. Um, yes, of course, get back into management and, and coaching which I did in South Africa. Um, I was asked by someone who loved cooking, could you come and do uh, you know, Hell's Kitchen? I was actually asked uh, two years previous, previous to that to come in, but they gave my place to, it was a comedian that, uh, from the South, from the South, Nick Nick, what's his name? Oh, Jim, uh, Jim Davidson. Jim Davidson. Um, and then they came back to me and said uh, they really want me on and I told them to go and jump in the bay <laughs> second year the third year they said no they really want you on so I said yes and thankfully I went in with a, a chef that wasn't Gordon Ramsay yeah. I went on with uh, Mark Pierre White who had the reputation of making uh, the only chef making Gordon Ramsay cry <laughs> so I thought that he was a, a tougher person to go on with, and I did. And, and yes, it was a great experience. Something that I always wanted to have done, but uh, and one thing about this whole situation, I never got sacked because I walked out. Yeah. I mean, do, do, you, do you regret that? Because you were one of the favourites to go and win it. No, as I said to uh, the whole table that night, uh, when he was going to sack someone, I said, I don't care who you're going to be sacking because uh, you're going to give him another chance um, because I'm going to be uh, walking out of here tonight. And he said, why? I said, because my, my wife needs me more than the people in here. And these people around the table need this episode more for themselves than I do. And I'd rather be, uh, be with my wife. And it was when uh, my wife whispered in my ear that, uh, the baby that she was carrying, uh, which she was cleared of the 12 weeks, and that was uh, it was okay. Have we ever got a chance, maybe, of seeing you opening a restaurant then in Newfoundland, or do you just cook for fun? <laughs> are you are you kidding me? Newfoundland, <laughs> yeah. there's restaurants that have come and gone. Yeah, fine restaurants. There's a couple of guys that have, uh, that opened up a restaurant here uh, called the Bay of Islands Bistro. And if they ever listen to this, uh, they to Ando, Andrew, Andrew and Ando, along with uh, Andrew's wife Cheryl, they opened up Bistro, which was a brilliant little place, fine dining and good cocktails. Well, that way I went by, by the wayside because everybody likes the jigs dinner here. <laughs> I'd just like to ask you one more question here, Bruce. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to do this. Just going back to Southampton, when you were reunited with uh, Alan Balder, was there a sense of comfort going back and coming in with someone you must have known so well from all the time you guys had spent together? Yes, that is a good question because I wasn't really uh, coming back uh, to go to Southampton. I came back from uh, Zimbabwe to go to uh, to go to another club, and I got back in the other club at Blackpool. Me. So uh, I ended up going down to Southampton and it didn't take me a blink of an island because uh, I drove all the way down to Southampton. Um, just outside Southampton, a place called Salisbury, met um, Lonnie McMenemy and Alan Ball, signed the contract uh, and then went back to Zimbabwe to get, get all my gear and came back to Southampton. You know, I knew that uh, Southampton was a great club, but it was another club that uh, was after me that I was going to sign for. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I just can't thank you enough. This has been an incredible interview. Um, want to wish you the best out in Newfoundland and hope you have a wonderful evening. Oh, well, uh, Pierce, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I won't be here for, in Newfoundland for that much longer. I will be getting off the rock. 
<laughs> I think I, des- uh, I I owe it to my daughter and to my wife to get into a place that's uh, more cosmopolitan and uh, and yes, more into football. Uh, here on the Rockers, the football is very close knit, and uh, the people with the balls don't give the ball away, and so that's why uh, they're in the position that they are in. And I'd like to get out into into the wide world and uh, start coaching or being a, a technical director somewhere because I think that uh, I can I can offer my services there in Canada uh, a lot lot more than just sitting here on the rock. Well, you're welcome back in Vancouver anytime. Hopefully, if if the Whitecaps have a 35th year anniversary in 2014, we'll, we'll see you back for some big soccer bowl anniversary but you're welcome in Vancouver anytime and if you're ever here just let us know it's been a real pleasure talking to you thank you very much indeed Michael it's great to be on the show and to all the people that have listened don't count out Bruce Crowley he'll be back in football in the Canadian scene someday very soon bye thanks Bruce well I'm rapping now I'm rapping for fun I'm your goalie the number one you can take the mix don't call me a clown so Bruce Grobelar there from our interview with him back in April 2012 and as you heard a, a lot has changed since then. Look forward to catching up again with him on Wednesday. Be good to see him, be good to see him back in Vancouver but hopefully he, he's going away a little bit disappointed uh, along with all the ex-Whitecap connected people with Ottawa Fury. And that is the Whitecaps that are going through to defend their Voyagers Cup in the final at the end of the month. And the Whitecaps, of course, are on a three-week break from MLS action for the Copa America tournament. That got underway on Friday with America's defeat to Colombia. Been a, a couple of couple of good games, a couple of boring games in the opening days of the tournament so far. Three current Whitecaps, of course, down with their teams for Copa America. Kendall Waston and Christian Bolaños for Costa Rica, Blas Perez for Panama, and an ex-white cap for Jamaica. Dever Orgel, who was on the bench today in Jamaica's loss to Venezuela. But of course the white cap that was making all the headlines was, unfortunately, Kendall Waston. Waston got sent off in the 94th minute for Costa Rica for a tackle from behind that kind of saw him wrapping his legs around the player. Was it a harsh to get a straight red? Possibly. I spoke to Robbo at the the USL game on Saturday night and he didn't feel it was worthy of a red card, although he did note that it probably would be a red card in MLS. But we both agreed that Waston should at least have a yellow card in the first half, maybe a yellow card in the second as well. So at some stage he was probably going to have had two yellows and got sent off. So you can't really argue too much with that. It's, I guess, a fair call. Afterwards, Waston was unrepentant. He, He was sad that he was missing their next game, but he, he didn't apologise for the tackle. And you do have to wonder, how is this going to play in his mind? Robbo, when I spoke to him, doesn't think it's going to affect him at all. He actually gave Kendall a call after the match and, and spoke to him about it. But in Kendall's last five competitive games, that's been three red cards, two straight reds, one for two yellows, a subsequent one-game ban for the tackle that he had on Ospreya down in Portland... And he missed a game from a suspension from yellow card accumulation. So, I don't know. Can he change his game? Does he want to change his game? Are you taking his best attributes out of his game if you want him to kind of control his aggression a bit? Hard to say. The only good thing is he's going to be well rested. When he comes back to the Whitecaps, he might only have played two games for Costa Rica if they go out of the group stages. And when he does come back to Vancouver, he's going to miss the first two matches back here anyway. So he's going to be well rested when he returns to the Caps. And if he does continue his disciplinary problems, is that a good chance he's going to be well rested going into the playoffs as well? But we're cheering on Costa Rica, we're cheering on Panama. I hope they do well down in Copa America. I'm looking forward to heading down there for a couple of games in Seattle later this month. The Argentina-Bolivia game and then the first quarter final, whoever it could be. Could be Colombia, could be the US. Disappointing crowds for the tournament so far. Not really surprising though when you look at the ticket prices. The game on Saturday down at Century Link in Seattle between Haiti and Peru. Not exactly two powerhouses in the tournament. Not countries that's going to have like huge drawing power for, for neutrals in the US. Poor crowd for that. Cheapest tickets $85. Absolutely insane. Read a tweet as well today from a, a guy that 
was saying that the three group matches that he's going to see in Orlando, the tickets for that actually cost more than his Orlando City season tickets. And that's that's just not right. At some stage, you're going to have to think, organisers are going to think, it's better to have bums on seats and empty seats, especially from a TV audience point of view. It looks like there's no interest in their tournament. It's a hundredth celebration of the tournament. You want to have packed houses. They really should have made the tickets more affordable. The other big international tournament that's going on this month and into July is not likely to have a problem with selling tickets. Euros 2016 is on. Gets underway on Friday with the hosts France taking on Romania. The tournament runs for a whole month from June 10th to July 10th when the final takes place at the Stade de France, which is also where the opening game takes place. Few MLS players going over to, to play for their countries. Obviously some big omissions. Lots of fuss about Jovinko not going over to, to play for Italy. From a Whitecaps point of view, there's a there's a little bit of rivalry going to be taking place on June 16th. That is when the big England-Wales game takes place. Cal Robinson against Martin Pert. Going to be some good banter going along with that. Wonder what bets we're going to have going. It's the first time Wales have qualified for a major tournament since 1958. Countries like Canada and my native country of Scotland, they should be paying close attention to how Wales have turned around their programme. They've gone from no-hopers to also-rans to challenging to to get into the tournaments to now finally making it into the tournament. They had a 10-year plan in place. Ideally, if it had gone faster than schedule, they were targeting the 2014 World Cup. That didn't happen. But they have made the 2016 Euros. Looked good doing it. Great quality crop of young Welsh players, that the best for a number of generations. And when you look at some of the Welsh players, the likes of Ryan Geggs and Mark Hughes that never went to, to play in an international tournament for their country, it's a great achievement by these guys. And obviously Kyle Robinson is cock-a-hoop about it. So let's hear a little bit from him now, just talking about what it means to the country and to him for Wales to have qualified for the Euros, his hopes for the tournament, and just how the, the country turned their soccer programme around. So here's Robbo. Yeah, no, so it's a massive achievement for the country. And, you know, if you look at the last major tournament, it was too long ago before most of us were born. I think, in fact, everyone except Nathan. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we missed out in 2004 with Russia in a two-legged playoff. And, you know, I thought that was as close as we've we've come since then. But what what Wales have done, and credit to the Football Association of Wales, is they've, they've gone back to the drawing board in 2004 and they, they devised try and promote young players as a group to come through the system uh, to be ready for the 2014-16 European Championships and World Cups and we didn't make it in 2014 and 2016 we did so it was a 10-year plan that was put together uh, and they deserve all the credit in the world because we're seeing some of the best players at the moment coming through Wales you talk about Ryan Giggs and Gary Speeds and Mark Hughes fantastic individuals as well but the team spirit at the moment they've been through the through the programmes together, the under-12s, the 14s, the 16s, the 18s, the 20s, the 23s, the B team, you know, they've been all through together. So credit to them for putting a plan in place because we're seeing the rewards. And I hope now they can go and enjoy it, but show how good they are because it's a tough group, um, but I think it's a tougher group for other teams in the group rather than Wales. So there's more pressure on them, other teams, rather (laughs) than there is on Wales. So Carl Robinson there talking about Wales' hopes for the Euros this month and into next. Definitely looking forward to the England-Wales game on the 16th. Be cheering on Wales that day. Actually, I'll be cheering on everyone in the tournament apart from England. It's the, the old Scottish way of ABE, anyone but England, because that's what we have to do, because we never qualify anymore. So a feast of football coming up for, for the month ahead. Not sure how many podcasts we're going to get done this month, because, as I said, I'm heading down to Coppa. There's a lot of other things going on, but we'll try and bang another couple out before the end of the month. Thanks for listening to this one. Hope you've enjoyed it. A little bit different from usual. I'm Michael McCall. You can find me on Twitter at AFTN Canada. You can read all our stuff on AFTN, away from the numbers, on AFTN.ca. I'm also the Whitecaps beat reporter for MLSsoccer.com and the Western Conference reporter for USLsoccer.com. So check out all my stuff on there. There's some good stuff up on USL on Friday about the, the Timbers looking to expand into Idaho and the big LA Sacramento derby, so check those out. But until next time, as always, thanks for listening. Take care. And especially on Wednesday when they face Ottawa Fury in a do-or-die game in the Voyagers' Cup. Mon the Caps.
Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life.